Hello and Happy New Year from all of us here at Jaffa Cakes for Proust. John, myself, Gary is Tilt. Hello. And we're going to see out the year in style. We're once again Jaffering the Beatles and this time we've promised we're going to be really, really nice about them. Things have come together quite nicely in this because, yeah, we got a bit thrown. We loved Hard Day's Night and I thought before I rewatched Help, all we're going to say about Help is that it's a bit of a curate's egg and we really didn't like Help. The way we reacted to the Beatles cartoon with our good points, bad points, was the way I thought we were going to react to Help. And of course, I knew what your reaction was going to be to Magical Mystery Tour. <laughs> we took that detour to the Sgt. Pepper movie. That got a right kicking. And so this strand has become more negative than I expected. But everything seems to wind up nicely with Yellow Submarine. Because some of the points we've raised are treated right here because what we have is we have okay it's a kind of jukebox musical there are four new songs it's taking the sergeant pepper idea and applying that to a movie the beatles personalities come across very well and it also it's psychedelic like magical mystery tour wanted to be it's in color like magical (laughs) mystery tour wanted to be and of course the perverse thing is the beatles are barely involved in it I don't think it's good because of the lack of Beatle involvement. This is almost like the Beatles have set up the world for this. The reason this is good is these people are kind of paying attention to the Beatles' roadmap. So they know what the personalities are, they know what to bring out in the personalities, and they're not the same personalities from Hard Day's Night. It's not like they haven't been paying attention. So we have George is now more meditative, and the first thing we see is they're underlining his... Indian mysticism. And also, of course, they've got somebody to scouse it up a bit. You know, there was a biopic of John Lennon a few years ago called Nowhere Boy, and about the first thing you hear from John Lennon is him shouting abuse at Jimmy Tarbuck. (laughs) Was he really upset on Terry Thomas's behalf? Actually, I'm going to say something ever so slightly controversial. I'm going to slightly disagree with you, and I'm going to suggest that the absence of the Beatles probably does work in this film's favour. But not anything against the Beatles per se, but because basically the people who are making the film have the freedom to just go and make the film. So you don't have to worry, for example, about what we're talking before, about whatever mood the Beatles, you know, individually as a group might have been on any given day, if they'd been engaging in the Mariana at any point, did that affect their performance and help? You don't have to worry about any of that kind of thing here. And it's got the budget for a big film that the Beatles cartoon doesn't have. And you haven't really got to worry about personalities. I, mean, I don't know what Dick Henry or Lance Percival or Paul Angelus would be like as voice artists to work with and what have you, but I wouldn't imagine that they would be more difficult to manage than having the Beatles on your hands and trying to sort of coax them into giving a particular performance. And I think probably the fact that they're not there probably works in its favour. From a logistics point of view, yes. But I don't think this is a good movie because (laughs) it keeps the Beatles at arm's length. What I'm saying is the Beatles could have made this movie. The problem with Magical Mystery Tour was the Beatles were in charge and were not really taking any tips from anybody. Okay, put it this way. Would you agree or disagree? I don't think that this film would be better if the Beatles were providing their own voices. Well, there's one person who agrees with that point, and that was George Harrison, who said it was more cartoonish. It's interesting that Paul McCartney talks about how terrible the accents are. I'm thinking, whose accent is he singling out? Because, I mean, Paul Angelis and Jeffrey Hughes, they're from Liverpool. We don't know about the guy who did uh, George's voice. He's a bit of a mystery man. It's only John Clive from London, so I don't know if Paul's being unfair there. The stories I've heard it is when the Beatles finally saw the film, that each one got the report back from the from the Beatles to the voice artist, I liked the other three, but I was wrong. <laughs> of course, you never really know what your own voice sounds like, except, of course, you do, because you edit the show, so you hear yourself quite a lot. Most people don't really know what they sound like, do they? So, Although you'd think, actually, the Beatles probably would. So this has learned that lesson from the Beatles cartoon, though. The Beatles are better when they sound like the Beatles. Actually, I think Paul's voice is the closest. Somehow. Paul is Geoffrey Hughes, isn't he? Yes. 
Had you seen this film before we watched it for this? I had not, no. All right, so I want your first impressions because you're the tabula rasa in this game. Okay, so do you want my first reaction or my considered reaction? Let's have both. Come on, we got time. Okay, first reaction, because you've put this thing in front of me and said, okay, right, here we go, Yellow Submarine. I'm looking at this thing. I'm thinking, this is going to be a long hour and a half. Oh, God. It's like tall people on the screen and rainbows are coming out of their heads. And I'm just sort of thinking, oh, this is going to be hellish. This is going to be like some student art house project or something like that. It's just going to go on and on and on. And I remember saying to you right at the outset, I said, does it get any better than this? I really hope it does. But the thing was that that was its nonsense, silly sort of opening. And there were a couple of occasions when it sort of threatened to go off the rails. But by and large, it was a cartoon film with a story, with a narrative. So it was fine. It's not really the kind of thing that I'd ever really put on as a sort of go-to standby film. Your sort of comfort viewing and what have you. Not something I'd ever really have on the shelf and stick in uh, in the DVD player. But as a film itself, it's fine. It's quite enjoyable. And... I think probably it benefits from you sort of listening out and trying to sort of work out who's doing voices and what have you once you know who, you know, the voiceover artists are. And yeah, it was it was fine. I can't say I'm blown away by it, but then I don't know that I really sort of get it. I'm not quite on the same wavelength. Like, this sounds ridiculous, but all the stuff that you've sent me about the Beatles, the films we've watched and the sort of the songs I've listened to and the flexi discs. All, all that kind of stuff. But it's endlessly quotable. The 1967 disc is fantastic. I'm about to say something really, really offensive, right? I will not blame you if you actually do just drop the mic and then walk off forever. But when you keep on saying it's endlessly quotable and what have you, you're starting to sound like a League of Gentlemen fan. I'm just going to let that sink in, listeners. All the stuff that... Stuff. I'm mean, talking about the Beatles stuff. For goodness sake. All the works by the Beatles that I've watched, listened to over the past few months and what have you. I can certainly appreciate it. I can appreciate how fabulous the the songwriting is and how well put together the songs are and George Martin's arrangements and and just the the overall brilliance of the four Beatles themselves. I can appreciate all of that, but I wouldn't call myself a Beatles fan. So... I'm perhaps less likely to sort of get wrapped up in, in the minutiae and the detail of things. Whereas I don't really consider myself a sort of a super fan of any particular musical group. I know that obviously you're a huge fan of the Monkees and the Beach Boys. And for whatever reason, I never really developed a particular curiosity to do with music. I love listening to music. I've got music on all the time. But I never got into music in the same way as uh, I get into, say, biographies of comedians or politicians. Or, you know, maybe it's like a specific TV series or a particular film actor or something and suddenly you just want to know all about them. You want to hear about all their tales or anecdotes, their whole life story. For whatever reason, I've never really found that with any musicians. So I don't know that necessarily I'm the right person to sort of analyse anything of the Beatles. I'm telling you this now that we're at the end of the the series, for goodness sake. I don't want you to analyse it in terms of minutiae and take numbers yeah my reaction doesn't lend itself to having a a long-form discussion my reaction to yellow submarine was if this was on at 10 past three in the afternoon on christmas day it would be perfect you know it's just a bit of silly nonsense it's fine and it's got amusing parts and what have you and of course the songs are fabulous and there it is the whole idea of this is to look at the beatles as an entertainment unit and the influence they have even on the things that we like to look at that are a bit more niche. So I think we brought Magical Mystery Tour into The Sandwich Man. So it's a thing like looking at these as British films, looking at these as British film comedies, or this doesn't really have a very specific genre. It's kind of a children's film, but that's what I want really to look at. It's not so much the influence on pop and rock music and, oh, the 60s, man. It's looking at the Beatles, because they're definitely part of the light entertainment world. And I think they do leave the light entertainment world slightly different, or maybe vastly different. I think they have a bigger impact on the way things are 
than Cliff and the Shadows. I've been watching Q5 and Q6 recently. It's interesting that the end of uh, one show of Q5, Spike Milligan singing Yesterday, it's interesting to hear him sing it like it's a standard. I do like that uh, sketch, actually. Yeah, And I get the feeling there's an element that maybe things wouldn't have happened. This- maybe Q5 would not have been the same without the Beatles being so off the wall. Obviously, they're a part of a larger cultural shift in the 60s. It's very hard to tell how much they are moving with it and how much they are moving it and how it's having an impact on the world that we're more interested in and also how they're kind of sucking things up from their cultural world, spewing it out, and it's then hitting things in different directions. Actually, a thing um, discussion I was having on Twitter with Tyler, which is the stealing of lines from the goons. And I've already forgotten which one it was, but we finally worked out that John's line in Magical Mystery Tour, where no human eye has ever set foot, is from a goon show. Spike reuses it in Q6. One way to look at it, then. The Beatles are obviously influenced by the goons, and as part of that, Richard Lester, who is part of Spike Milligan's gang in a way. I mean, he directed a show called Fred, didn't he? I don't know if he did stuff on Idiots Weekly. So you've got that kind of goon world, running, jumping, standing still, which I think is an extra on Filmstruck when you watch Hard Day's Night, or it was at one point. So we've got this kind of goon show world is, is drawn into the Beatles. I mean, first time I heard the song Yellow Submarine, I thought the bits in the middle... Put me the head, Mr. Burson, put me the head, put me the head, I thought there was actually bits of the Goon Show spliced in. <laughs> the Beatles get the world into this idea of entertainment about pop groups and individual personalities. That then influences the Monkees. And I am stealing, again, I'm stealing from an essay written by Andrew Hickey. So that influences the Monkees, and there's certain bits you watch in the Monkees, and you can see the Goonisms and Lesterisms. Uh, I think if you watch an episode of The Monkees and then it's Trad Dad, that's not even Beatles, you'd see parallels in places. And I think The Monkees, it's not so much a direct influence on the goodies, but it kind of sets up a world where the goodies can happen. Those goody capers. So there's going to be an extended sequence of running around and visual gags to a song, to a pop song, written by Bill. And so we've got this line you can draw of... (laughs) British comedy going into pop music, going into US pop music, coming back to British comedy. And it was it's an essay, I think, on We Are Cult, uh, written by Andrew Hickey. And I think he sort of says, no monkeys, no young ones. Of course, no Beatles, no monkeys, no goods, no Beatles. And you can just keep going back and back into uh, eternity. And so that's what I wanted to look at the Beatles, is the Beatles as entertainers, the Beatles as a comedy troupe. And Yellow Submarine, I think, has a big impact on children's television. You can see Crystal Tips and Alistair. And I mean, Jamie and the Magic Torch, there's that machine in it that is it's like a rejigged version of the Yellow Submarine. Mr. Boo and all the others, too. They look like ideas that have dropped from the table of Heinz Edelman. I'd now like to take a brief diversion. So talking about that opening and the psychedelic animation and the design... I want you to talk about Game for a Laugh. Go on, just tweet quickly tell the people. What? What Game for a Laugh is? No, your night memory. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Ah, right, okay, right. Now, this is going back a long way. This is like 30 odd years ago. This is actually how this show really started, was we were both guests on Louis Barth's show at one point, and you were on to talk about your bizarre television dreams. (laughs) I did discuss once having a dream about the pilot edition of Game for Laugh. And if you haven't tweeted already, apart from there being a program called Game for Laugh, none of what I'm about to say is true. So the pilot edition of Game for Laugh was in 1974. It was not hosted by the traditional four presenters, but was actually presented by BBC Current Affairs journalist Philip Tibbenham. So presented very much in the style of Colin Gordon in The Complete and Utter History of Britain. And... One of the features in it was a rather odd bit of business with Kenneth Williams and Kenneth Connor pretending to be 
Russian spies in a shopping centre and doing some weird sort of mime business. The relevant bit is the opening title. The, re- the relevant, yeah, the relevant bit is that the opening titles were the psychedelic, really self-important, self-centered, just piece of nonsense. It was really sort of the height of sort of hippie culture, and there was all these just sort of like flowers and what have you. No consideration given to how long a set of opening titles normally would be. This thing is going on for minutes and minutes, and at one point they acknowledge the contribution of a team member who left before the show was complete and what have you and it's just so self-indulgent and i'm thinking these people must never ever have made anything for television before what is this nonsense no wonder they changed it before it got to the air seven years later i don't think you would have had that dream had it not been for yellow submarine (laughs) i'll give it it that yeah that's fair enough again it's not so much this stuff's invented in yellow submarine it's not that that design school wouldn't have happened without Yellow Submarine, but being done through the Beatles, it is thrown onto a much larger platform. But here's the weird thing we found out when we were doing our research. Yellow Submarine, certainly in the UK, was considered a flop. So the film premiered July 1968 at the London Pavilion, and the feeling was that takings were not up to expectations, and it was announced that the rank organisation were then not going to give it a general release in their cinemas. What surprised me about the reception to the film was that The Mirror and The Express both gave it glowing reviews, whereas The Guardian didn't like it. And I would have thought that actually it was going to be the other way around. I would have thought that The Guardian was sort of, you know, sort of blown away by how innovative and so on that it was, whereas I would have expected perhaps the mass market newspapers to say something like, Oh, there wasn't enough Beatles in it. They only turn up at the end. Otherwise, it's all a big cartoon and what have you. But no, not at all. A rather pretentious piece of popular entertainment. That was the Guardian's work. I'm wondering if most people actually took that view, though, that it's got the Beatles music in it, but otherwise, it's not really the Beatles, is it? Was that Maybe that was the sort of the general reaction from people. It's interesting. The publicity did downplay the Beatles' non-involvement. To the extent that I think at first the voice artists weren't even going to be invited to the premiere. Don't know if there was talk of maybe not crediting them. I should have written this down. I watched some making of documentaries. Uh, Their credits in the film kind of mentions that they're in it, but it doesn't say, and with John Clive as John Lennon and Jeffrey Hughes as Paul. It doesn't do that game. There had been criticism, and this was some months after the film came out, there was criticism of the album being not good value for money because you only got four new Beatles songs. One side, two old Beatles songs, four newish Beatles songs. And if we do want to talk about my new shit, some of those weren't really all that new. And side two was excess of George Martin's score, which is fantastic. Okay, your silence indicates... No, I'm not disagreeing at all. And as a matter of fact, I suspect that out of the Beatles unit, I suppose you would say, as in the sort of extended family, George Martin is the person that I'm most interested in. Certainly, yeah, the film score is fabulous. And so is his opening theme for Radio 1. And so, as a matter of fact, (laughs) is the Sgt. Pepper film soundtrack, if we're going to be absolutely honest about it. That's a great soundtrack. That's a very brave stance to take. So hang on, let's just see where we are just now, because we're rapidly losing listeners now. So I don't like League of Gentlemen, and I think the Sgt. Pepper film soundtrack is really good. What else can I say in the course of the next 90 minutes that is basically going to start a flame war on Twitter? What do you think of Star Wars, then? Nah. That's my honest reaction. I'm not putting it down. I'm not being a contrarian. It's just, nah, not my thing. So how about that woman Doctor Who they have nowadays? Uh, Don't like this business they're saying about... And of course, it's been on already, so I don't know why I'm talking about it in the you know, forthcoming tense. But I don't like this business about them supposedly portraying William Hartnell as some sort of sexist in the new Doctor Who. That's, that's not on. That's it. That's my entire opinion of the new Doctor Who. So from my complaining about Sergeant Pepper and how it was a bad jukebox musical because it didn't properly integrate the songs, there isn't really that much of an effort to integrate the songs. It really is. Back to the cartoon series, there's a lot of, oh, time for a song. The one place I think this comes a bit unstuck is when you have When I'm 64 and then immediately after it's, what's this? The Sea of Science! And then we get Oddly a Northern Song. It's not a scientific song. 
Well, they should have just used sounds from the BBC Radiophonic Workshop for I'm that. I'm guessing part. the closest to integrating a song um, would probably be Hey Bulldog, which the American audience didn't even see. There was a feeling that uh, it was too long. It's too much animation. The audience would get antsy. Now, here's the thing, okay, when it comes to the animations. This came out in July 68, yeah? So for six months or so beforehand, Terry Gillingham has already been producing animations for Do Not Adjust Your Set. And I would argue more entertaining animations than in Yellow Submarine. Yellow Submarine, to me, is like a sub-Gillingham attempt at being surreal and zany and what have you. Whereas if Yellow Submarine was animated by Terry Gilliam, I think it would be fabulous. I haven't seen much of his... I've seen elephants. But beyond that, I haven't seen much of his pre-Python animation. And on the subject of Do Not Adjust Your Set, should the Beatles have released a cover version of Captain Fantastic? I think the original really needed to get out there. That's the best thing Eric Idle's ever done. Well, it's interesting, the use of photographs, which was becoming an increasing tendency towards the end of the TV series, the Beatles TV series, is it is a nice way of making things look more expensive. You can have more detailed backgrounds without much work. Actually, here's an interesting thing. Letraset and its relevance to Yellow Submarine. It was decided that it was going to be hell animating the submarine turning around and back and forth and things like that painting those cells every time so what was done was suitable drawings were made of the submarine turning around and going back and forth and these were then turned into letter sets that could just be stuck on onto the cell so they didn't have to be painted every single time so I think when you're talking about Terry Gilliam would have been better. I think part of it is Terry Gilliam's only doing very short animations. If you're going to stretch his work out to a feature film, I think there'd be similar shortcuts being taken here. Do you know what? I actually need to issue a public apology at this stage because I have now discovered that Terry Gilliam's animated contributions to Do Not Just Your Set apparently only appeared in the latter episodes. So I don't think they actually would have appeared before Yellow Submarine came out. Actually, hang on a minute. Do you have the DVD of Do Not Adjust Your Set? Which I think on the front says featuring Terry Gilliam animations. And of course, yeah, it's all from Series 1. Yeah, Series 1 was 67, wasn't it? Yeah, and Terry Gilliam's only on the Thames series. Uh, Sorry, I was getting... I should have jumped on you much quicker. So, yeah, I hereby resign from something. I shall endeavour to put right this uh, outrageous falsehood which I've um, promulgated. By the way, you've completely killed off this whole idea I had of ending the series with a high. <laughs> We're going to go on about, oh, this is wonderful. This is fantastic. We're so glad the Beatles existed. I think you'd be happy if there were no Beatles. No, I, I never said that. I never said that. I know that, that you, you think that I think that the 1960s is like, I don't know, the, the fall of the Roman Empire or something. I did suggest like the other day that you should dress like Ian Cranky. Well... No. Nice grey slacks and a sweater with a shirt underneath the collar out. Looking sensible and middle-aged. Not ha- You don't have to have your hair the same way. All I'm saying is that your crooners, like your Jimmy Young, your Pat Boone, they were always very well turned out. And you wouldn't have them running around with multicoloured frocks on or long moustaches or... You know, smoking funny cigarettes. That stuff is fine. No, that stuff is okay. You've never seen my shoes, have you? That's the kind of sentence that, even though they're all very common words, that sentence surely doesn't get said every single day. How many people actually say that? You've never seen my shoes, have you? Under what circumstances, apart from these circumstances? No, the answer is no, I haven't seen your shoes. Have you got some... um, You know, Vans, low tops, but they're... I can't remember the name. They're modern art. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I get it. That's generally what I like. used to wear uh, tie-dye, you know, all-stars. Yeah, I was going to say, I reckon you probably wear Converse. No, I'm not Converse, that, that's it, yeah. There's not, nothing wrong with that kind of thing. It's all fine. But... But that's okay, people. You I mean, look, the, the Beatles. 
let's assume that they had real live versions of these outfits. They're all okay. Okay, George's stuff's a little bit brown, it's a bit drab, but they're okay what they're wearing. You see, what the thing is, is even though they're not turned out, short back and sides, shirt and tie, they are turned out. What happened to this idea of dressing up? Nobody does it really anymore. No, I agree with you. Yes, no, it's nice when people do sort of put on a show. In fact, flipping back to, I think, a couple of Christmases ago, uh, when we watched the George C. Scott version of A Christmas Carol, and I was saying that maybe, just maybe, the grinding poverty, the poorhouse, the imprisonment of debtors, Maybe that was actually all worth it, because at least when you were looking at Victorian London, there was nobody wearing cargo shorts and flip-flops to the theatre. <laughs> that was also your reaction to The Glories of Christmas, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. So, actually, my reaction to the 1960s doesn't sound half as bad, when you put it like that. So, I'd mind if everybody was wearing psychedelic clothes. As long as everybody was, you know, dressed up to their best. And you say, yes, okay, some people can't afford it. Then we need to nationalise the clothing industry. We need to address that issue, yes. But but people should always be well turned out, very smart and what have you. Even if you just go into the pub for Sunday lunch and what have you. Right, okay, right. The problem is that nowadays everybody looks like Terry Collier, whereas previously they all looked like Bob Ferris. And we should get back to people looking like Bob. I wish they looked like Terry Collier, even. Even that would be, and I don't know, maybe it's because of, of where I live. Loafing. They've got, like, just, like, shirts that aren't tucked in and sort of short shorts that may or may not be rolled up jeans. And So, the Beatles' sort of personalities. Shoes. They're established very early on. And yet they're slightly developed. Actually, the only one who doesn't really get any personality development is John. What did you think of John in this? Because you're, you're, you're the most down on John. Again, I think he benefits from not being himself. Yeah, he's Mike Harding, isn't he? <laughs> yes, he is. Yes. You know, there's a story that at one point in John Lennon's FBI file, there was a picture of him that wasn't <laughs> actually a picture of him. It was a picture of Mike Harding. <laughs> I would like to think that that snapshot that I took the other day of Charles Hawtrey in one of the Caddy on Christmas TV shows, where he had rounded dark glasses on and with his long hair I, I said to you look here's a you know photograph of John Lennon I would like to think that that had appeared in the FBI file at some point I just think they're more obsessed on the comedy folk sort of thing and so if you're wondering why uh, Robert Muller has called in Richard Digens and the Horton Weavers for questioning <laughs> so Ringo is still the put upon one though in this case Nobody's really putting up on him. He's just depressed. It's interesting, the first thing this thing does to us after the opening credits is, Liverpool is hell. It's just a horrible place where people do repetitive acts and, I mean, it hits us in the face. Eleanor Rigby, right after Yellow Submarine. Okay, that's how it was if you had the single, but stay with me. It's a very interesting start. Even then, depressing Liverpool looks kind of colourful and groovy. Well, it's like you said the other day about the 60s. How sort of ordinary 60s look interesting, whereas even glitzy 70s look seedy. You mean a couple of beauties, don't you? Yeah. (laughs) So Ringo is downbeat, put upon, depressed. Very sceptical of old Fred. Old Fred is... uh, well. I don't know, do we assume everybody's seen this? Or if if you want to know who these people are, the film is not difficult to get hold of. John is more vague. I mean, he is there with the wisecracks. And there is a mild sense of him being the leader. When they're trying to open the bubble at the end, I mean, well, actually, no, that's an interesting thing. John starts coming up with a long, convoluted explanation of what the bubble is and how to open it, and the other three Beatles all wander off. Fingers in ears and... Paul starts singing any old iron. So there's a sense that John is the leader, but actually they don't listen to him. They just let him do his leader thing. My favourite line in the entire film, though, is nothing is Beatle-proof. George, they emphasise 
his mysticism and how for him everything is perception. He can change the colour of the car. So he steals Ringo's car and then proves it's not Ringo's car because the colour's different every time. It's all in the mind, you know. Which, again, is a thing the goons kept saying. But it's that sense that it's the life of the mind for George and it allows him to do things. And then just the fact that there's been that explanation and then Paul already knows what the problem is. I like the idea that Paul's a bit slick. And I mean, Help never really did that. Help had them in those little capsules inside their house. But I don't think it got the personalities across as directly and as well as Yellow Submarine did in minutes. Again, you've got the issue of the Beatles themselves were not actors. But in this, you've got you know a tightly scripted story being told by professional actors. So it makes sense that even in the absence of the Beatles themselves, it does get their personality over more succinctly. Okay, here's an interesting thing. There's not really much sense of the Beatles as a band. When we see Ringo, he's just wandering around Liverpool. And when we meet up with the others, there's only a sense that Paul has been entertaining an audience. The Beatles are just a group of people. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. That it's just like they're the Beatles, like they're the Justice League or, <laughs> or the goodies. I mean, the goodies, they're just them, aren't they? They're a collection of people with a collective name who do things. And that's an interesting breakthrough <laughs> for the image. I know there wasn't that sense of them as a band. There was that sense that they weren't the Beatles in Magical Mystery Tour. But then we kept having to cut to them playing instruments. In this, we see them miming playing instruments. And we see them playing the instruments that belong to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But that's about it. I don't know. I just find that really... F I'm, I'm, I want to see the next step. I want to see the film they should have made after this. Well, it follows on from the Beatles cartoon. Because we've established by now that the Beatles are a unit which doesn't really require any explanation as to their existence and to be introduced to who they are. So I guess it makes sense then that by this point, you know, Hard Day's Night and Help have established that the Beatles are you know, a group. And by this point, it's more that the Beatles, I know you don't like this, this word because it's so sort of ubiquitous today. And if you take offence at this, I apologise, but could it be that by the time of Yellow Submarine, the Beatles are no longer a group. The Beatles are a brand. Um, there is that weird sense, isn't there, that you can actually put that Beatles brand on for people who are not the Beatles, behaving like the Beatles. But I'm not sure to what extent... I don't think the Beatles are a brand because the Beatles are not divorced from context entirely. Okay, let's talk about that Doctor Who Christmas special that hasn't gone out as we're recording this, but has when you're listening to this, and neither of us have watched it. It kind of bugs me that now the First Doctor is sort of divorced from William Hartnell. I don't know to what extent I can allow myself to be angry about this, but it's just that thing, isn't it, that now you don't need William Hartnell to have the First Doctor. Richard Herndl was one thing, something of a desperate move, but it's that thing of like, are now they all going to be divorced from their actors? To what extent is that a nice thing to do to somebody? Thanks for doing the heavy lifting, but we don't need you. I don't know. I haven't given it a great deal of thought, but for some reason just doesn't sit right with me. And I think Doctor Who is the ultimate BBC brand in that you can divorce it from so much of its context and it will just keep going. Everything the show says can be unsaid in another story. Everything it stands for can be contradicted. And at some point it ceases to be pluralism and diversity and it just becomes, who cares as long as those two words are stamped on a thing, it's a thing that people will want. And it doesn't matter if the roots have decayed and vanished. That's just a vague reaction. Yellow Submarine, I don't think the Beatles have lost themselves as a group and become a brand. Even though this is, you can do the Beatles without the Beatles. They still have to be singing Beatles songs. They still have to be conveying the message about peace and love. 
and the Beatles still have to turn up at the end. They have to be there to say, we are the Beatles and we approve this message. Yeah, but you said to me, didn't you say to me that that wasn't originally the case? Actually, they agreed to do that after they surprisingly themselves liked the film. I would imagine they might have been strong-armed into that anyway. But yes, they thought this was going to be a feature version of the cartoon show, because again, produced by Al Brodex, and he had managed to parlay his television rights into, we should definitely do a feature version and they thought that that's what this was going to be, a feature version of the television series. And that wasn't something that particularly interested them. Now, I can't remember where I heard it. It's only a few days ago. I don't know if it was on the commentary track or one of the interviews. There is mention of John suggesting an idea that turns up in the film, which is that whole thing that Ringo's walking through Liverpool and the submarine's following him. And somebody said, it was John Lennon said, wouldn't it be good if you had a yellow submarine following Ringo around as he's walking down the street? So there must be some extent they had an ear, but that could have been just something he said at a party. Oh, hi, John, I'm involved in the uh, feature cartoon. Oh, right, tell you what you want to do. Have a submarine follow Ringo. But yes, so the, they weren't that committed. The songs in it are... George's two songs from 1967. Only Northern Song is an outtake from Sergeant Pepper. This was the song he brought to Sergeant Pepper and George Martin said, try again. Actually, I think altogether now, and it's all too much, were ideas for the Our World broadcast. And I'm not sure about Hey Bulldog. Going back to this idea of the Beatles brand, right? You mentioned there before about how box office takings were lower than expected when the film was released. Had this been a gigantic box office smash hit, is it fair to assume that there would have been sequels? And could those sequels, if they continued to be successful, could they have continued even beyond the demise of the Beatles as a group? Yes and no. Yes, there could have been sequels. I wouldn't have been surprised. If this had been a massive smash hit and they said, we have to do another one right away. Now, admittedly, this would then mean getting into 69 and maybe having to happen in 70. But let's say maybe the plans are in place very quickly. I could see a sequel to a smash hit animation having the Beatles doing their own voices this time. At the press conference or the premiere, at some point George says all of our films will now be animations because it just helps us do things more quickly. So in George's mind, there were going to be more Beatles cartoons. Now, yeah, the problem would be then you'd be producing a film at a time when the Beatles are falling to bits. I mean, John, behind the scenes, leaves the group in September 69. But yeah, this comes back to a silly conversation we had. People talk about that parallel universe where John Lennon survived and the Beatles did Live Aid and that idea that on oh, then they'll do another album and it'll be fantastic and we'll get the Beatles back for the second half of the 80s. I said, I want to go to the universe where that, all that happens and then they announce, it's like, it's going to be a Beatles press conference. Oh, they're going to announce they're doing a new album together. And then they announce that their next big project is the Beatles in the great green candlestick caper. <laughs> got to make a silly movie. Indulge me, right? Okay. I know that I like to do recasting and what have you. I'm going to do some silly nonsense here. Let's say that one day in 1970, the Beatles, instead of breaking up, all thought, do you know what? We're great, aren't we? We're the Beatles. We should all stick together and let's just do exactly that. And they did, right? What shows and films would they have been in the 1970s if the Beatles had still been a group throughout that decade? So I'm thinking straight away, I'm thinking that they would have had a guest appearance on a Christmas generation game. So the Beatles, <laughs> Beatles come out, they sing one of their songs and then like the contestants, they've got to like replace them and sort of join in and what have you, right? <laughs> That definitely would have happened. Now, those kind of films like... Um, now, I'm not, I'm not sure which one of these are 70s. I think these are more 60s films. But you know the f films like The Great Race and It's a Mad Mad World and you've got Smoking the Bandit later on, all that kind of stuff, right? One of those daft, silly movies, right? They could all be in that, right? Now, they could all sort of turn up and let's pretend... It's like, what's that thing? Four for Texas? The one with like, the feast? Did you suddenly turn up, right? So, yeah, the Beatles, they're like sort of... I don't know, the, the four buskers or something like that, and they turn up in that, right? Ah, what, could they, what could they have advertised? I disagree. I don't think the Beatles would have been on the Generation game. Really? Yeah. You're thinking more 3-2-1? I think they're too big for that. 
But yeah, I can actually see <laughs> the Beatles turning up in Cannonball Run 2. <laughs> Damn, I was hoping you were going to say Cannonball. <laughs> Guaranteed, I think the Beatles would have been on the Muppet Show. It surprised a lot of people when they turned up in that episode of Romany Jones. I'm trying to think, what, what, what could they flog? What could they advertise? I don't know, Polaroid cameras or something like that. So something sort of new and cutting edge, right? Because they'd probably be interested in that, wouldn't they? A bit, you know, new technology and what have you. Hey, I know. Right, I've got it. They could do the Woolworths Christmas advert. Because <laughs> there's lots of different parts of them all to play and what have you. Yeah, that'd be fabulous. The Woolworths Christmas advert couldn't even get three goodies. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever it was that were advertising in the 70s, it would have been free Beatles and Lonnie Donegan. Right, here's a thing, right? I think Dick Emery is really underrated and also has been disgracefully forgotten about by television in general. I know that his bits and pieces still turn up occasionally. Usually you see like little sort of mini compilations on things like Gold or uh, UK TV drama I used to show little compilations of Dick Emery's show from BBC. But he should be right up there. He, he should be having documentaries made about him you know, at this time of year and what have you. Why not? You know what his best turn in this is? Max. I like Max. Max adds character to the bad guys. So I know the Chief Blue Meanie is very camp and that gives it sort of like odd... I don't want to sound judgmental, but I think in the 60s, a camp bad guy would have come across as a bit kinky. And Max with his... He's not a yes man, he's a no man. But Max with his little odd interjections. Guy Lombardo. <laughs> he really adds this, this nice little element of colour <laughs> to that side of things. One thing we didn't get to hear in this film that was recorded was Jeremy, the nowhere man, Jeremy Hillary Boopford singing the first few lines of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. New lyrics were written, picture yourself just out nuclear fission, with library cards under metaphor skies. Somebody quotes you, you read from the source book a concept with microscope eyes. Not that I've listened to that too many times or anything. <laughs> uh, that was recorded. Dick Emery on a Beatles record. And apparently John Lennon said no. Oh, spoil sport. <laughs> hey! The Beatles, instead of John Pertwee, could have done the Noodle Doodle Man. <laughs> You've got a very interesting vision of a parallel Beatles where really they're much lower down the pecking order. <laughs> Actually, no, right. Okay, serious suggestion, right? going to say Stars on Sunday. No, I'm not, I'm not going to say that, no. I'm going to say, and I'm saying Christmas special, not just a run-of-the-mill edition, okay? Wheel Tapas and Shunters. Yeah, oddly, that could kind of fit in. <laughs> I think that could happen. Have you ever seen John Lennon on that salute to Lou Grade? I can see him kind of doing wheel tappers because, yeah, gives them that sense of back to their roots. It's good enough for Roy Orbison. Now, here's the thing, because you mentioned them in passing earlier on, but we've got Paul Angelus as Ringo, we've got John Clive as John, Jeffrey Hughes as Paul, and we've got who for George? What's this all about? Uh, this was somebody that... I can't remember who it was in the production. Overheard him in a pub speaking with a Scouse accent. And it's like, oh, would you like to be in a film? So the chap's name is Peter Batten. So he was George for the first half of the movie. He wasn't George for the second half of the movie because he got arrested for desertion. And I've never... Uh, so if I think for the rest of the film, it's um, Paul Angelis, who's also narrator and voice of the chief blue meanie does George for the second half, and it's not really that noticeable. Why isn't Paul Freese in this? Because Lance Percival is. And okay, when I was a child and I saw this, I thought it was Clive Dunn playing old Fred. I think it's a fantastic Clive Dunn impression. I don't know how deliberate it is on uh, Lance Percival's part. I suppose he didn't slip in some Tommy Cooper here as well. Well, yes, that would have been nice. So it's worth mentioning, yeah, uh, this was script doctored by Roger McGough. So he was the one brought in to scouse it up. He said when he had the script, the first he saw of it, it was full of wisecracks, but he said it was kind of New York Jewish humour. And it would have sounded wrong coming out of the Beatles' mouths, especially now the Beatles sound like themselves, rather than Rex Harrison and Irish Peter Laurie. I'm just, certainly I've just had this odd little idea in my head. There's um, a moment in a, 
Sherlock Holmes film. After they made the first two, which were set in period, they then I think they went over to Universal and started making those Sherlock Holmes films that are set in the 1940s, which was not unusual. Those two Sherlock Holmes period films made with Rathbone and Bruce, that's actually the first time Sherlock Holmes had been made as period pieces. But I don't know if it's the first one, at the beginning of one of them, they get the case, they're just about to go out. Holmes picks up his deer stalker and Inverness cape and Watson turns around and goes, Holmes, you promised! He goes, oh yeah, and he puts them down. It would have just been great at one point for Ringo to go, oh yeah. And the other three to, Ringo, we talked about that. But you end up with nice little lines that I think are McGoffisms, like uh, it's blue glass, oh it must be from Kentucky. Um, Frankenstein, I used to go out with his sister, Phyllis. <laughs> oh, just looking at my notes, Harrison told reporters that they were going to be uh, making animations from then on because of the critical drubbing that Magical Mystery Tour got. Oh. So for some reason in this, I can accept more that the songs don't actually link up with the story as much. There's no real reason for Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band to be singing Baby You're a Rich Man, but it's fine. This is the big change that happens between Hard Day's Night and Yellow Submarine. In Hard Day's Night, the Beatles get what they want to an extent, or they get through the day because of hard work. Even though we have these fantasy cuts to I should have known better when they're playing cards and suddenly they're playing instruments, there's still that sense that the Beatles get what they want because they work for it. It reminds me of a description of the first anthology collection where somebody says, listening to those takes, those alternate takes that are almost the same as the finished takes, you you can smell the tea and tobacco. By this point, the Beatles get what they want because the Beatles are magical. The Beatles just make things happen. One of the plot points is solved because John develops the ability to make the words appear out of his mouth as solid objects. That's how they get rid of the glove. There's a bit of ending fatigue. All you need is love is a really good ending, and then the film keeps going. (laughs) Don't they fight the bulldog after all you need is love? So it's like one of the big fight scenes comes after one of the big solutions. My main problem with the look of this film is there's too much white sky in Pepperland. They should have just put some smeary, you know, just drip some watercolour onto some paper that it would bleed into and use that as a background. But you said you got free tote by the colour of the sky in Edinburgh. That was different. The sky never got black. What time of year was it, though? Um, It was August. Oh, there you are, then. Where I come from, the sky gets black at night all year round. No, but it's different in the summer. It is not where I come from. So you're out in Edinburgh at 2 o'clock in the morning and the sky is going... Yeah, it's about half past nine here. (laughs) Is it the same in Glasgow? Because I thought, you know, maybe Edinburgh had their own sky with salt and sauce. No, 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 no. No, you you still get that sort of funny business going on in the summer months where you can sort of look up and you can still see a bit. Yeah, that's quite normal. Do we have anything to say about Jeremy the Nowhere Man? Did you say to me that this was in some way a sort of takeoff of Jonathan Miller. He was in there. There are a number of different polymaths being made fun of. That's why The Guardian didn't like it. Do you think whoever did the review also wrote for The New Statesman and got really <laughs> irked when Jeremy says, I must work it into my New Statesman piece. <laughs> you crossed the line, Beatles! Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that, That's why they used popular culture in such a disgusted manner. Ugh. <laughs> mentioned Dick Emery before. Let's mention the other voice actors for just a moment, because you also mentioned Lance Percival there. Of course, we talked about him on the Beatles cartoon cast. And you suppose you would say that he was, this time, he was most famous for being the guy who wasn't Cy Grant, who sang the Calypso songs on TV. Would that be fair? Well, he's already been in Carry On Cruising. That was a role that was supposed to go to Charles Hawtrey, and he was having one of his fallouts with Peter Rogers. So I think he'd be known as a face who turned up in things. But yeah, probably most famous for Calypsos. And John Clive is, if you can't place John Clive, he's just one of those faces. He's just in everything for this period in time. He's in two episodes of Rising Damp as different characters. He's in Carry On Abroad and actually does audio commentary on the DVD alongside Robert Ross. 
And yeah, John Clive is, is just one of those stalwart supporting actors who just turns up in pretty much everything at some point in time. Paul Angelis. Now, Paul Angelis, I know, is in, in an episode of Man About the House. He's in an episode of Porridge. And he's also, funnily enough, he's in the second Alf Garnet movie, which doesn't <laughs> have the traditional TV cast because it has Paul Angelis in Tony Booth's role and it has Adrian Posta. Uh, and Isn't Eunice he a promiscuous drug addict in the film? Yeah, it's a bit of an oddity, that film. Ned Sheridan's production of the Elf Garnet Paul Angelis should play Peter Serafina, which is dead in something. Yes. And Jeffrey Hughes. Funnily enough, the other day, I was watching a wee bit of a Christmas episode of Coronation Street that found its way onto YouTube. This is something that'll be on Granada Plus years back. And he's brilliant, Jeffrey Hughes. In that, as he always, he always is. I mean, Jeffrey Hughes. I sort of, I primarily, I suppose, I associate him these days with the royal family. That's Twiggy. I was in Heartbeat for a while, of course. And again, he's just sort of one of those faces. Just turns up left, right, and center, and everything. But you probably see more Coronation Street than I have. So he was, he was, he was in Coronation Street for a long time, wasn't he? It was in quite a few years. Yes, Eddie Yates. He was in it briefly and then brought back which happens quite a lot in coronation street it's like bet lynch is in it for a few weeks in 1966 and then he's back in 1970 as a major character uh, he's in a, an episode of the mind of mr jg reader of course i've forgotten all about keeping up appearances Onslow, of course he's very interested in wood turning that's something i turned up when i was researching <laughs> hang on this is michael gambon and laves all over again isn't it i guess so yes no, one thing that popped into my head, weirdly hearing these disconnected performances, was where they went wrong in the 1978 Sgt. Pepper. You know, I said the really irritating thing is when Billy is injured and his girlfriend, Strawberry, is comforting him by singing Strawberry Fields Forever. In a way, she's sort of rubbing it in because he's injured and she's saying, me on the other hand, I'm fine, I'm going to live forever. She, not the soul-singing character she should have been called lucy and then to sing a comforting song to relieve it she said picture yourself in a boat on a river she's doing kind of calming visualizations for him makes a hell of a lot more sense than let me take you down because i'm going to me <laughs> we didn't mention the screenplay was written by eric siegel author of love story now it's love story that's the one isn't it that the lead character is based on two roommates that siegel knew and do you know who those roommates were? Uh, I think it was, was it Tony Randall and Jack Klugman? Sadly not. It was Al Gore and Tommy Lee Jones. Blimey. They are <laughs> the basis for the lead character in Love Story. So he was the one I just wrote this script. I mean, he apparently knew nothing about the Beatles. And when Al Brodex said to him, Sergeant Pepper sold a million records, said Mrs. Pepper must be very proud. I don't know if that's a slightly dressed up anecdote, but he, he was trying to emphasize he, he wasn't really part of the Beatles world. So McGough's doctoring must have been very successful because this does have a very strong and authentic voice. So this is a top film. Yeah, I quite enjoyed it. I know that, that that's not really being effusive with praise, but I think that you probably enjoyed it more than I did because I think that you're more interested in the, the background to this. But like I said before, as a film, it's good fun. Pop it on. It's not on TV enough, I would say. I think it would be perfect for ITV4 of an afternoon. There's an idea. Of course, this nearly got remade. This was on the slate for a CGI remake. And what killed it was Mars Needs Moms bombing. I never saw that. I don't know if that was done with motion capture. I did see Robert Zemeckis' 2009 Christmas Carol. That was done with motion capture. So anyway, Zemeckis was going to do this remake and concept work was done and the blue meanies are hideous. <laughs> they had the part cast. I've heard differing accounts of who Peter Serafinowicz was going to play. One I heard it was Paul, another I heard it was Ringo. Of course, I think he could have just done all of them. Damn right, yes. I'd almost like to see that come back. Some change in fortune gets it turned around and greenlit again. It's interesting, after raging against things turning into brands, well, maybe not even a remake of Yellow Submarine, just 
a Beatles film coming out in 2019 of just them running around having adventures. But yeah, you can't really trust the industry. Right, okay. You know the Beatles? I've never met any of them. (coughs) Well, met one of the Beach Boys, so, you know. And two Pythons. Hey, when you said about the Beatles, you're not keen on the idea of them being a brand and what have you. I don't know why this suddenly popped into my head, but I just thought, I'll have a quick search for this on Block, and I found a fabulous webpage. It's called The Beatles Incredible Edibles, an illustrated price guide. And this appears to have been written about 20 years ago. I can't believe I'm saying that, but something on the internet. But yes, there it is, and it's all there. Seriously, right. You've got the candy rolls, called the Ringo candy rolls. You've got the Ringo's cookies from Nabisco. You've got Quaker Oats granola with a John Lennon flexi disc offer. Right, we'll send a link out to this. We'll post a link to this on Twitter so you can have a look at this whilst we're chatting away about this. But honestly, this is fantastic. It's all just there. And I was going to say in a sort of dismissive, sort of funny way, I was going to say, yeah, if they really had like no qualms about just flogging, you know, any old tat, then they could have lent them into everything. But according to this page, it looks like they did. You've got Ringo-flavoured bread. <laughs> Look at it. It's, it's this Ringo roll. Oh, my God. This has finally answered a question. Something I thought I saw, and I think I did see it. Chewbop's miniature album collections. And it's basically a record made out of bubblegum. I'm sure I saw some of these on Aaron. I'm sure I saw a bubblegum package with the Abbey Road album cover. Well, yes, that is very interesting. And There was uh, a lot of Yellow Submarine related bits and pieces on here. I've looked at the second item there, the candy cigarettes box, Yellow Submarine branded. <laughs> then follow down the page, we've got gum packs, Yellow Submarine branded from Anglo Confectionery. Well, they need to bring some of this back. Never mind giving his coloured vinyl of your Christmas flexi discs and, and refusing to just sell us flax. Next year, when I'm in Ralph's, I want to see in the cereal aisle, I want to see a big box of George's Crunchy Savoy Truffles. Look at the Nestle strawberry milkshake towards the bottom, right? Nestle's quick, new improved strawberry flavour, and it's got inflatable beetle dolls on the back. Yes, those are worth a fortune. Oh, oh that is fabulous. Do you know what? I've got a whole new... Yeah, this isn't really good listening, you enjoying yourself, so... No, 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 it's not like that. No, but this is honestly, this has given me a whole new appreciation for the Beatles. Knowing that they've lent their likeness and what have you to all manner of toot. This is brilliant. By the way, when you're thinking that I'm flipping out about those bubblegum records, the date they give here is 1986. I think I would have been on Arid in 1987. I didn't buy one, duh. No, I had to buy a Garfield book. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on a second, hang on a second, hang on a second. Right, there was Sergeant Pepper film-related chewing gum. Oh, that was an insane merchandising bonanza. That really didn't pay off. Well, while Gary hits eBay to buy himself some yellow submarine chewets laced with LSD, <laughs> we will say Happy New Year from Jaffa Cakes of Proust. We'll be back probably sometime in the spring with a new series of the Sitcom Club. An all-new series. Indeed. In the meantime, of course, you can still get in touch with ourselves. We're at Jaffa's for Proust on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook as the Sitcom Club. You can find all of our previous shows at podnose.com. And, of course, you can find all manner of other shows. There's practically a thousand different podcasts at podnose.com now. But thank you very much, amongst all the feedback we've had, thank you very much to Joanne Gray, for getting in touch with us on the Podnos page itself for our Sandwich Man podcast. She said, interesting discussion. I haven't come across this film yet, but it sounds like one worth watching if only to play Spot the Star. I'm surprised when you mentioned Michael Benteen blacking up to play a role that you didn't mention the other times, at least two to my reckoning, that he did the same in other movies of about the same era. He was an Asian station master in The Great Centrinian's Train Robbery and an Arab sheik with a kink for chorus line girls in Rent-A-Dick. Would you believe I've <laughs> never seen Rent-A-Dick? I mean, honestly. I've I, never it. seen it all the way through, and it's been probably the better part of 30 years since I saw the great Centurion's train robbery. Honestly, you know some of the crud that I've sat through. 
Right. So, I mean, you would have thought, wouldn't you, that Rent a Dick was going to be on my DVD shelf. But no, never seen it. Maybe we'll stick that on the list for next year. So, I'm happy to tell you that newer and bluer meanies have not been spotted within the vicinity of this podcast. We don't have to go out singing. So, from me, Tilted Isa, goodbye. And from myself, Gary Roger, thank you very much indeed for listening to Chaffee Cakes for Proust. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.